Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On DAB, digital radio, online and on 1089 and 1053 AM. Icon of all sporting broadcast media and jolly nice chap to boot. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. I'm John Motson and on this edition of Motty Meats, I'm taking centre stage myself as TalkSport's Sam Matterface engages me in conversation about some of the classic games and moments I've had the privilege of commentating on during my career, including this moment when Michel Platini sent France through to the final of the 1984 European Championship. Tigana, two to his right, and Platini through the middle, Tigana again, Tigana, Tigana, Platini, go! Platini for France with a minute to go. It's 3-2. I've not seen a match like this in years. Michel Platini scoring the winning goal against Portugal in the final minute of extra time at Marseille's fabulous Stade Velodrome on the 23rd of June, 1984. One of your most famous and iconic commentaries, Motti. And I'm really excited about this because essentially we're going to be taking the listener inside the Motti Mind Palace. Thank you very much for inviting us, not only into your home today, but also into your mind and and trying to get a real sense about some of those great sporting occasions that you've commentated on. We'll discuss that fantastic game in a little bit more detail later, but let's start with the match that that really propelled you into the consciousness of the football fan. The, The FA Cup third round replay between Hereford and Newcastle United. It was 1972 and Edgar Street, and what was a, a, a dodgy pitch and a yeah. fantastic crowd. Well, it will go down as one of the most iconic giant killings of all time, Sam. But, you know, when I talk about this game, people often forget that it was a replay. Mm. And I'd been up at St. James's Park as a radio reporter for the first match. And Hereford, who were then in the Southern League, took 5,000 fans up there. Newcastle, of course, fielding six internationals, including the great Super Mac, Malcolm McDonald. And you know what? Hereford scored in 17 seconds up at St. James's. Anyway, on the day of the replay, the rest of the country was playing the fourth round. The BBC thought this was just a straight wrap-up. Newcastle would win 2-0, and the junior commentator, the said John Watson, would just get highlights at the very end of the programme. And that I didn't go into the match thinking that, because, of course, I was new and I wanted to make an impression, and I went through all the usual homework. I actually travelled to the game with Billy Meadows and Ricky George in Billy's car, two of the Hereford players. And we met Jackie Milburn in the hotel, who was a journalist by then, um, and had a discussion with him. I remember him saying to Ricky George, you should be in bed. And Ricky said, well, I'm only the substitute. And, and, he, <laughs> and, and Jackie Milburn said, you should still be. And he said, oh, well, if I come on tomorrow and score the winning goal, will you still say that? <laughs> well, talk about prophetic. Um, they'd obviously, in those days, had to build a very temporary commentary position. And for 82 minutes, I suppose you'd have to say, the game went very much the way you thought it might. Hereford 
putting up a great fight as they had in the first game. Newcastle kind of holding them at bay and then on the break looking ominous as well with McDonald and Tudor and Tony Green. And then, of course, Malcolm, who'd been... And he said this when I interviewed him for Motty Meets. Malcolm had been sort of shouting his mouth off all week about how many goals he would score. And a few minutes before the end, across from Viv Busby, and Malcolm headed the ball into the net, and he sort of made a gesture to the Hereford supporters as if to say that. that, Well, in fact, I said on the commentary, that's it. And then, of course, five minutes from the end, and uh, goodness me, I wish I could have had some money for telling this story down the years. And I wish Ronnie Radford had some money for it because he got this ball. It was in... It was a mud heap, the pitch, and it bobbled a bit when he first struck it. I always remember that. And it flew into the top corner of the net past Willie McFall, the, the Newcastle goalkeeper. And do you know what? I remember my moment when I was, I said, what a, and I paused. You won't really pick this up on the commentary, but I was ready to say, what a shot, because I thought it might hit the post and come out. Of course, it flew in the top corner. Tremendous spirit in this Hereford side. They're not giving this up by any means. Radford. Now Tudor's gone down for Newcastle. Radford again. Oh, what a goal! What a goal! Radford the scorer. Ronnie Radford. Extra time, and of course, ironically, the guy who I'd travelled down with and knew from my days in Barnet and his days at Barnet, Ricky George, came on as a substitute because they realised at the end of 90 minutes that the late Roger Griffiths had played nearly all the game with a broken leg. And Ricky came on as a sub, I don't think he would pretend that his goal was anything like as good as Ronnie's. In fact, it was a bit of a scuff. And it went through Bobby Monker's legs and into the corner. And once again, all the Hereford lads in their parkers came on, the, came on the field. And I finished up interviewing Ronnie and Ricky for match of the day. And quite right what you said, the match was promoted to the top of the programme. And I think that day was, I was on trial for a year from my radio job. And if it hadn't worked out in television... I was destined to go back where I'd come from. But I think being there that day probably made the bosses think, well, actually, Motson could do a big game. And by the end of that season, I'd got a television contract and I was doing matches in the Home International Championship. And it was all down to that moment, the boot of Ronnie Radford. Ronnie, Ronnie and I have often said, because we have reunions, believe it or not, they, they used to call me the 13th man, the Hereford players. And I went to all the reunions and, I, and we had the same conversation. I used to say to Ronnie, I said, do you know what? I said, that goal you scored changed my life. And he used to say, well, don't worry, it changed mine. We have the conversation both ways round, actually. <laughs> and, 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 and that was just a phenomenal start to my television career. Five years later, after Mm. this magnificent event which launched your television career, Mm. you found yourself doing the FA Cup final. How did that come about? Good question. It came about because David Coleman went off somewhere. Some people thought he was going to go and work in America and he was the cup final commentator, but he wasn't going to do that year. And everybody expected Barry Davis to get selected because he was kind of seen to be senior than me. He'd been there longer and they picked me. And it caused a real gefuffle. I mean, there were press stories about Barry being upset. And although we never fell out personally, I've got to say, and I still speak to Barry on very good terms. But then he was really upset. I was very nervous, having been put into it in, in, with that kind of backdrop. Um, and I did so much homework. This is my first FA Cup final. And the one thing I remember is opening a magazine in a hotel in Liverpool the week before and seeing a little, it said, facts about Wembley. There are 39 steps between the pitch and the Royal Box. And I thought, I've read that book, 39 Steps, John Buchan. And then I thought, the Manchester United captain is Martin Buchan. 
Now, I don't believe, and I know you don't either, in commentators writing things down which they might say if so-and-so happens, because we both know it's a spontaneous job. But I did write that down that day, because I was writing so much down. And of course, Manchester United won the FA Cup, and I was able to say, well, how appropriate that a man called Buchan is going up the 39 steps to get the cup. And I think that rescued me a bit, really, because the rest of my commentary on my first cup final, I have to say, was at best indifferent. It was a difficult game, though, wasn't it? With a difficult goal. Yes. Don't forget, I came from the early 70s when we didn't have replays on Match of the Day on a Saturday that we could see. They had to put them in later. So you didn't get much help. Once a goal had been scored, you had to remember what had happened. Now, the only replay I had on Cup Final Day was the one on the angle I'd just seen. So it was very... I I remember saying, is it Makari? Because he'd had the shot. And, you know, I'll be very honest about it. I wouldn't have got it right unless Jimmy Hill hadn't nudged me. And he went green off. And we just watched this solitary replay. And sure enough, of course, uh, I saw the ball come off um, Jimmy Greenoff's chest and I was able to get the scorer right. But, but it was a very unnerving moment. Now, we've had some epic matches recently between Tottenham and Manchester City. but <laughs> Oh, just a bit. <laughs> in between the two big giant killing yeah. ties that you were involved in. Yeah. Of course, you were involved in the FA Cup um, final of 1981. In yes. fact, two FA Cup finals in 1981 because you had the first game and then the replay, which we all talk about now, yeah. which happened on a Thursday night it did. in the middle of May. And it was unique because it was the 100th FA Cup and it was the first time the final at Wembley had gone to a replay. Mm. And it was on the Thursday. Um, I was quite kind of friendly with Keith Birkinshaw then, the Tottenham manager, and I got good access to the squad. And of course, I'd played a very small part in the Ardiles um, via transfer in 1978, because when I got back from Argentina, the first phone call I had was from Keith Birkinshaw pleading with me to give him some information about a fella called Ozzy Ardiles and another fella called Leopoldo Luque, who was the centre forward. And this is because you'd been to the World I- Cup I'd in been to Argentina and I'd got all the notes. And I gave them to Keith and he then... With Harry Haslam, he went out to Argentina, and to cut a long story short, Leopoldo Luque didn't fancy coming to England. Ozzy did, but Ozzy said, can you bring my friend Ricky Villa, who hadn't played a lot in the World Cup. He'd been a sub most of the time. So, of course, these two boys came to Tottenham, and there was the ticker tape welcome and all that kind of stuff. And Spurs were always, in those days, a better cup team than they were a league team. And, of course, 1981, the centenary of the FA Cup final in terms of years, Spurs-Manchester City, the first game was a bit aggressive, actually. Jerry Gow was flying into tackles. And the other thing about it, of course, was Tommy Hutchison scored at both ends. He put City ahead with a diving header and he deflected Glenn's free kick for the equaliser. He's absolutely delighted that Ricky Villa stole the headlines. Well, of course, and he did because he was taken off. And it was almost the saddest exit since Ratting in 1966 because he did what Ratting did and walked very slowly down the touchline. I think I mentioned in the commentary. Anyway... I went to the Spurs training in the intervening days and I always remember one of the boys who was on the ground stuff said to me, you know, Thursday, he said, I, I've got a funny feeling. They said, I think Ricky Villa will play and he'll score. And I said, well, that's a brave shout. I said, because he probably doesn't think he's going to start. Anyway, Keith did pick him and it was a classic game that final. John Bond of Manchester City, the manager, he had them playing a certain way. City leading 2-1 for goodness sake and then Garth scored of course to make it 2-2 and then we had this moment when Ricky Villa picked the ball up and I still don't know how many players he went past I think it grows with the telling really he certainly dribbled past Garth Crooks for one and he slotted this in and of course what a story it's come to McKenzie 
What a good tackle by Graham Roberts. And now Galvin. Spurs have got two to his right, and Galvin wants to go on his own. Villiers. And still Ricky Villiers. What a fantastic run. He scored. Amazing goal by Ricky Villiers. It was a romantic kind of occasion for some reason. It was a warm night and Wembley staging its first replay. There was a, there was a bit of nostalgia in the air almost and, and certainly excitement. And I'd had two or three goes at the cup final by then. But that replay was the first time I ever felt really completely settled and comfortable as the commentator. And it had something to do with how good a game it was and Ricky's goal. Motty Meats, John Motson special. Sam Matterface in conversation with John Motson on Talk Sport. Ah, the theme for the television coverage of Spain 82, Northern Ireland, Brian Robson's 27-second goal, and Paolo Rossi, who starred in one of the classic games of World Cup, arguably Brazil against Italy in the second round of that fantastic event, could have been the finest ever match at a World Cup, couldn't it? Well, it's certainly the best match I ever commentated on, and I'll, I'll say that regardless of any other Cup finals or England games, because, of course, that World Cup... What they decided to do, FIFA, was when the first round groups were over, which England won easily theirs, they went into another group mm. to determine who would get to the semi-finals. England lost out in the second group. Meantime, the Italy group was quite fascinating as Italy had made a very poor start. They only just got through their group in the first round. But then they came to the four and they beat Argentina 2-1. Brazil beat Argentina 3-1. So now it was Italy versus Brazil competing for a semi-final place. But Brazil had got a better goal difference. So all Brazil needed to do was draw. And you have to remember that. That would have taken them through. Well, what a game it was. It was played in the Saria Stadium. It's a car park now, I'm told. A little stadium in Barcelona. And it was like being at Upton Park. The crowd were really close to the pitch. The atmosphere was phenomenal. The Brazilian supporters marching down to the ground. I remember that so well. And John Rowlinson, who was an editor at the BBC, walked past my commentary position and I said, what are you hearing? And he said, the Italian journalists are saying this could be Rossi's renaissance. I said, really? And after five minutes, he scored with a header. Socrates, the cigarette smoking, not the philosopher, the Brazilian centre for equalised, beating Zofferty's near post a few minutes later. Great ball from Zika. That was 1-1. Then, the, for some reason, the Brazilian defence wasn't really on form and Rossi then intercepted a bad pass from Cerezo and he scored to make it 2-1. Second half, Falcao, who played for an Italian club actually, but was in the Brazilian midfield, he scored an equaliser, which was brilliant, really, because he, he beat Dinos off from outside the penalty area. But Cerezo, the midfield player, had made a dummy run to open it up. So I thought 2-2. Two, two. Now, if, if it had been any other team in the world, they'd have closed the game down, because you could in those days, because they knew a draw was enough. Italy got a corner. And when it was half cleared, I always remember the Brazilian left-back junior stayed on the goal line. And David Pleat said to me years later, why didn't he run out? Rossi would have been offside. He stayed on the goal line. It was knocked back in and Rossi was waiting and he completed his hat-trick and suddenly it was 3-2 Italy. So now 
They were through and Brazil had to get a goal. And in the very last seconds of the game, I can see it now, Brazil got a corner. And the, um, the corner was on the left-hand side and Ed Air took it, but he had to move some paraphernalia that had been thrown onto the pitch in order to get the ball down by the flag. And the seconds were ticking away and he took the corner and the big centre-half, Oscar, was up for the corner and he met it on the forehead and he whacked it down. And Dino Zoff, captain of Italy, 40 years of age, the goalkeeper, he fell on the ball and the ball was actually on the line. And that's how close it was. And then the final whistle went. Graziani's pulled away towards the penalty spot. Coming up on this side, Antonio Cabrini from left back. Chipping it in. And a possibility for... Oh, Rossi! Rossi's got it! And here's Socrates pushing the ball forward to Zika. Oh, what a turn. He threw Gentile. Socrates is in here. Scores a goal that sums up the philosophy of Brazilian football. Cerezo. Oh, Rossi. And Rossi's in again. 2-1. Paolo Rossi. Terrible mistake by Cerezo. Away from Conti. Falcao over to the right in a good position. Still Falcao out. Still Falcao. What is right? It's there. Falcao who plays for an Italian club, wipes out Italy's lead. Bagomi is up there, shot by Tardelli, and it's been turned in. Paolo Rossi was there again. And the Brazilians were coming off in tears. Bobby Charlton was my co-commentator. He was crying with the emotion. And I heard somebody say in my ear, John, it's fantastic, but hand back to London, we've got to do the news. And I always remember thinking, well, this is the... Bloody news, you know? And <laughs> Anyway, that was it. And, and, and what happened then was Rossi continued his rise because in the semi-final, he got two against Poland. Italy went through again. And lo and behold, in the Bernabeu, my first World Cup final, it was Rossi who dived through a crowd of players to put Italy ahead then. And if you remember, the goal people remember more was Tardelli because he came towards the camera with his eyes bulging. It's Rossi. It's Chirac. It's Begomi. It's Scherer. They're appealing for offside, not given. Scherer right across to Marco Tardelli. 2-0 to Italy. So Italy, Italy, after a fallow period, came out as World Cup winners. And Brazil, who said it was their best ever team. Some of the Brazilians thought it was a better team than the one that had won in 1970. That has become a cliche, and I'll explore that with you in just a moment. But going back to Paolo Rossi, yeah. I mean, this is a guy who had failed to score at the tournament prior yes. to that game that you yeah. mentioned, yes. the big Brazil match. Yes. He'd actually come back from a two-year ban yes. and got himself into some sort of trouble. Trouble over match-fixing. Yeah. Trouble and over match-fixing. How did you sort of convey all of that emotion? Because when he did score finally, and well, Italy did get through, it was a very emotional I, What match. I did, I thought back exactly to what John Rowlinson had said to me before the match as he walked up the steps. The Italian journalists are saying, this is Ross's renaissance. And that's the line I used in the final. Um, in terms of the Brazil team of 1982, a lot of people have said, and I know that it, you know, it becomes a bit of a cliche because it's well-worn, mm. that that was the, the best team never to have won a World Cup. You've seen a lot of World Cup finals, a lot of World Cup tournaments. Do you think that's true? 
Yes, I do. I think I think that they pick the same team for every match. They used, one of the Brazilian officials used to come out the dressing room and even when the previous match had just finished and said same team next time, they were so confident that they were going to do it and so enthralled by the fact they had Zico and Socrates, two of the best players I ever saw. But they had a weak goalkeeper, Brazilian trait that really, and Italy were just on a high once they realised how near they'd come to elimination in the first three games, struggling against the likes of Cameroon. And every match they played after that, they got better. The final itself in the Bernabeu was your first ever yes. World Cup final. Yes. Uh, Rossi obviously opened the scoring in the 57th minute. You mentioned the Marco Tardelli mm. moment. Yes. Doing a World Cup final for the first time. Yeah. How big a deal was that for you? Big, big, big deal. Um, again, like my first FA Cup final, very nervous. I'd been to Argentina in 78 and I'd got as far as doing the third place match. So this was my promotion, if you like, to the number one seat because by now David Coleman had gone back inside to be a presenter. And it, it, it was very nerve-wracking. And I remember thinking when it was over, well, again, it wasn't my best. Uh, not my best World Cup final by a long way, but I, I stumbled through it somehow or other. And uh, it put me on track for a run of World Cup finals. That was the important thing because you had to wait four years to know whether you'd do it again. And I was just relieved when four years later, I found myself in the seat in Mexico. That was the first World Cup that I think I watched every single match for. Yep. And it was the tournament of Maradona, yes. wasn't it? And yes. you found yourself covering the classic quarterfinal between yeah. France and Brazil well, again, the Argentina-Belgium game. Yeah, well, the Argentina-Belgium game comes to mind because you have to remember that I did not do the quarterfinal between Argentina and England. The issue was that the BBC was still trying to keep Barry Davis and myself happy. And I was quite upset when I was told I wasn't doing England versus Argentina. And I remember that. But the consolation was I did the Brazil-France game at Guadalajara, which was just as dramatic. Um, but anyway, Maradona had scored the Hand of God goal. And now, of course, the papers were full of Argentina and, and be, with, the, with the tournament being on that continent, particularly. Uh, Mexico had been struck by an earthquake, by the way. So there was a lot of emotion and a lot of there were people, homeless people everywhere you went. And then they played Belgium. I was in the commentary position here and Maradona scored two of the best goals I've ever seen. They were very similar, actually, to one of those he got against England. He seemed to beat everybody. And uh, Belgium couldn't live with him. Bruchaga. Aldano in the centre. And Maradona. There he goes. Maradona! He's done it once again. Maradona. Going at them again. Brilliant run by Maradona. In the best sense of the phrase. It was the semi-final, really, where I thought, well, I, I think Argentina are going to win the World Cup now. And sure enough, they played Germany in the final. A, a funny game, actually, because Argentina were two up and Germany came back to 2-2. Two -two. But Maradona played the ball through for Burishaga to score the winning goal. And, of course, it was the World Cup of the Azteca Stadium, 120,000 people. I think it was the biggest stadium I'd ever commentated in. And, you know, when they got the World Cup, the Argentines just full of joy. And, and it was a World Cup, actually, where the Mexican people helped to make it because those games created fantastic interest in the city and all over the country. And um, the kickoff was noon, I always remember, because of the sun. 
Um, and then actually Brian Moore from ITV, who had been presenting in London, flew out to do the final. It was his first game. And I remember him saying to me, God, I don't think we, can, we won't see the numbers on the shirts with a sun like this. And it was tricky. But I remember Argentina were in their blue and white stripes. Germany were in green. It was a great match. And, and it, was a, it, was a, it was a terrific sort of experience. To be, I'd done one in Argentina, but something about World Cups on that continent always had a special ring to them. So Mexico 86, one of my happiest memories. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Motty Meets. John Motson Special. Sam Matterface in conversation with John Motson on Talk Sport. Well, let's take a look at some of the games which have stood out for you in domestic football, starting with a match all the way back in 1977 between yeah. Derby County yeah. and Manchester City, which saw the penalty spot having to be repainted before the yeah. Rams' Jerry Daly could take the well, spot kick. That was an iconic moment. Well, yeah, I mean, this is what people often ask you questions about your commentating career, and often I'm asked, what's the most bizarre thing that ever happened to you in the commentary box? And I picked this game because... People who see the lovely pitches teams play on now, including the one at Derby have at Pride Park, would never believe until they saw television pictures how bad the baseball ground pitch was. It used to be a quagmire by November. And this was towards the end of the season. Derby had come down an awful lot from the days of Brian Clough and Dave Mackay. They were fighting relegation. And in April 1977, they played Manchester City at the baseball ground and they went 3-0 up and were you know really going to get some very important points in their relegation. Archie Gemmell has scored, I remember that, and Kevin Hector, of course, one of the most famous Derby players of that era who won the league under Brian Clough and all the rest of it. And then four minutes from the end of the game, Gemmell was fouled, and Joe Corrigan, the goalkeeper, had the ball, and he looked at the referee and, and shook his head as if to say, well, where's the ball going to go? Where's the penalty spot? And Derby were looking mystified as well. And the referee, he kind of saw what had happened. The mud had obscured the penalty spot completely. And there was a pause, and then there was a bit of a movement. And suddenly the Derby groundsman, Bob Smith, who I knew, was walking round the touchline and behind the goal with a pot of paint. And I thought, I don't believe this. And Joe Corrigan (laughs) cheekily marched out the 12 yards, the goalkeeper and the referee. I'll check that, I'll check that. The referee marched 12 yards. And Jerry Daly was going to take the penalty and, and the, by now the crowd were they were it was almost a, a humorous moment as well as a moment when they just wanted him to score and I remember Jerry Daly putting the ball down he wasn't 
affected by the fuss at all and he took a few steps back and he beat Corrigan and Derby beat Manchester City 4-0. Arguably one of the outstanding performances from the great Liverpool side of the late 80s which you witnessed throughout the course of your commentary career was that 5-0 demolition of Nottingham Forest at Anfield in I think 1988, another game that you had the pleasure of commentating on. Liverpool were flying high. This was the Liverpool team of Peter Beardsley, John Barnes, Hansen, Steve McMahon and Grobola was in goal and it was a very warm spring night at Anfield and Liverpool tore Nottingham Forest apart. 5-0 was the score, Houghton and Aldridge in the first half and then three more in the second half, Gary Gillespie, Beardsley and another from Aldridge and the Forest goalkeeper Steve Sutton had an outstanding game even though he was beaten five times. Liverpool hit the woodwork several times too. It was a joy to watch and it One of the people who was there was the late Sir Tom Finney. And I've never forgotten what he said afterwards because somebody said, Tom, have you ever seen football like that? And Tom Finney said, it was the finest exhibition I've seen the whole time I've played and watched the game. You couldn't see it bettered anywhere, not even in Brazil. The moves they put together were fantastic. I can't remember a league game where one team got as close to perfection, as Finney said, as Liverpool did that night. But Liverpool had a trickier time when they came up against Wimbledon in the FA Cup final just a month and a day after that fantastic win over Nottingham Forest. And that was another iconic moment of yours. I guess this is the cup final of all the 29 I did that comes back most readily to mind because one or two things need to be got straight here. You have to remember that Wimbledon, despite where they'd come from, non-league if you like, through the league, were now in the top half of the Premier League. This wasn't an underdog such as a team from a lower division. But Liverpool, of course, were chasing a double. And nobody really thought I was in a BBC meeting on the Tuesday before the final. And I said, who thinks Wimbledon can win this on Saturday? Not a single person put their hand up. But Bobby Gould and Don Howe, because that was the management duo, they had a funny feeling. They, They kind of thought they could sort of find a weakness in Liverpool's side. Two of Liverpool's defenders played with head bandages on, if you remember. They'd had a collision, hadn't they? Mm. Gillespie, I think, was one of them. Anyway, the night before the game, Wimbledon, the Wimbledon players, the people say they went to the pub. I think they did, actually. But not before Don Howe had held a late training session and he made a tactical change. He swapped round Dennis Wise and Alan Cork, right or left. And he thought he wanted to contain the Liverpool fullbacks, And he thought this was a better way of doing it. So, And Don was a great coach, by the way. Great coach. And Bobby Gould was a great motivator. So I remember the start of the game. Vinnie Jones nearly cut Steve McMahon in half. And we'd only been playing two minutes. And Wimbledon, they were really muscular. And they were kind of physically ready for Liverpool, if nothing else. And I'd watched Wimbledon play in a game against Charlton three weeks earlier. And don't ask me why we played on a Sunday then, because there was no television. It was played at Plough Lane on a Sunday morning. I think there was something to do with transport, a reason why that was played. And I remember a corner being taken by Dennis Wise and Laurie Sanchez scoring with a near post header, flicking it in. And it was, you had to see it happen quickly. And I thought, well, I'll make a mental note of that because you never know. And there I was in the commentary box at Wembley. And in the first half, 37 minutes gone, Wimbledon got a free kick, not a corner, but a free kick out on the left. And Wisey, because he was the master with the free kicks, Dennis, he was, a, you know, clever. And he came, and I watched, and I thought, yeah, Eric Young will go up for this, and Andy Thorne, and they didn't. And I thought, where's Sanchez? And he took the free kick, 
And I saw Laurie, I saw him flick it in, you know. Sanchez caught Young and Fashionu in there. And Sanchez was in there, and that's a goal for Wimbledon. Laurie Sanchez. And then, of course, it was half-time. And at half-time, the Liverpool coaches, Ronnie Moran and Joe Fagan, they were chasing the referee, Brian Hill, down the tunnel. And Bobby Gould was trying to stop. Oh, it was tremendous. Why were they upset with him? They were upset with him. 98,000 people, by the way, were at the game. Because if they were trying to get him to perhaps be a bit more persuasive towards Liverpool, they succeeded because in the 68th minute, it was a penalty to Liverpool. Now, what had happened was Clive Goodyear, the right-back, tackled John Aldridge... I thought he got the ball. I didn't think it was a penalty. But Brian Hill pointed to the spot. And, well, this was a moment that I always remember because the goalkeeper, Dave Besant, lived near me. And I'd phoned him the previous week because Aldridge, at this stage in his Liverpool career, was taking penalties with a little bit of a, a stutter in his step. And I said to Dave Besson on the phone, this was the night, two nights before the final, and I said, Dave, what are you going to do if Aldridge gets a penalty? I said, because he's been trying to fool the goalkeeper with this run-up. And Dave Besson said, John, I'm not even going to bother what he wants to do. I will definitely dive to my left. I said, fine, OK. Didn't think any more of it until the award of this penalty. And, of course, a penalty had never been saved in an FA Cup final at Wembley. And Dave Besson was the Wimbledon captain. So everything was set up, a bit of drama. And Aldridge did do the stutter, and he did go to the right of the goalkeeper as I was looking, but to Besant's left, and Dave saved it. Dave Besant in the week told me that he's been watching where Aldridge puts his kicks. Besant thinks that, or thought the kick might go to his left or the right as we look if Aldridge decides to go the same way as in the semi-final. He did, and he saved it and made history. Wimbledon held out. Liverpool couldn't get back in. And when the final whistle went, Des Lynham was presenting in the studio and he came down to the commentary box and he said, John, we're going to go down to the Wimbledon dressing room. And I said, well, you'll never get in now. They've just won the cup. And he said, yeah, but he said, we've been doing... And there was a lad called Chris Lewis who was a producer at the BBC then. And he'd struck up a big friendship with Wimbledon right back to Dave Bassett's days. And he'd been making a film about them during the season. And Des said, Chris Lewis will be down there. He'll get us in. So Lynham and I went down the tunnel at Wembley, the old Wembley, of course, and it was packed. The actual motor coaches were there. There wasn't much room. Journalists trying to get through to somebody. And Des Lynham, I always remember this, because Des wasn't usually the sort of person who would have done this. And he banged on the door. And the dressing room door opened, and Chris Lewis was standing there. And he said, oh, come in, you and John. Well, I'll never again go in a winning dressing room as close to the end of... Well, they'd already had the celebrations, but... But Vinnie Jones and John Fashionu were lying on towels on the floor. It was so hot. And Bobby Gould was there, and he was keeping himself together, and we, we just stood. And Bobby Gould said to the players, now, when you go out there, don't shout your mouths off. He said, keep your feet on the ground, don't insult... Liv he was giving a little team talk about... When you're knowing the Wimbledon boys, he needed to with Vinnie there. Anyway, we, Vinnie Jones finally got up off the floor, and Chris Lewis said, photo! And they put Des Lynham, me, the FA Cup, Vinnie Jones and Chris Lewis in a picture. Brilliant. Which I've still got. Before you got into that dressing room, mm. you came out with, I don't know if it is the line you're most known for, but certainly it is a line oh, yeah. that is often repeated. The crazy gang have beaten the culture club. Well, for all I said about not writing things down, vis-à-vis -vis Martin Buchan in 77, I can honestly say I had not written this down. But... 
I don't claim a great deal of credit for it because everybody called Wimbledon the crazy gang. Mm. And of course, Boy George was in the charts, wasn't he, with Cam Chameleon, with the Culture Club, yeah. which was a record I liked. And, and Liverpool played the cultured football. So it just came out. And I didn't think to myself, people will remember this with a few, a few, in a few years' time. It never even occurred to me. The thing about commentary lines is the best ones come out when you haven't planned them. And I always think back to 1966 and Ken Wollstonehome. There are people on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. Well, of course he couldn't have planned it. He know there were going to be people on the pitch in the last minute of the game. And that is the greatest commentary line of all time. Has to be, because it was when England won the World Cup. So, yeah, I'll live with it. I did say that. Motty Meets, John Motson special. Sam Matterface in conversation with John Motson on Talk Sport. Motty, one of the great England moments, and we haven't really spoken about England no. as of yet, was September the 1st, 2001. It's etched on my memory that mm, day. Mine too, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that it's probably etched on every England supporter's memory. Yeah. Why? Well, I think partly because there had been so many disappointments, Sam. You know, I'd been to World Cups and England hadn't fulfilled the expectations and, you know, we'd had the sort of golden generation hadn't really come to pass then. So we all thought, well, if there's ever going to be a chance, it might be now. Because we'd been through the Bobby Robson era, we'd been through Ron Greenwood, we'd seen the World Cups in in those years. And of course, Italian 90 had been a hell of a, a disappointment. And then we went through the 90s and, you know, Euro 96 didn't quite work out and... Then Sven Joran Eriksson came on the scene and I had a bit of a, an uplift really. I thought Sven being a foreign coach and coming from a different mentality would put a new edge to the England setup really and do it in a different way. And up to a point he did. Didn't see it through quite the way we'd have, we would have liked. But the highlight was definitely the World Cup qualifier in Munich, which you've mentioned. And, and when the game started, I thought, oh, dear me, here we go again. Karsten Janka, six minutes, 1-0 Germany. And then something just took on a new kind of awareness. And, and, and England just, Michael Owen, mind you, did equalise very soon after that. And then Steven Gerrard, right on half-time, made it 2-1 to England. And in the second half, we just ran away with it. Owen scored twice more, and Heskey got one. All the goals scored by Liverpool players, by the way, that night. And... When Owen scored his third, I said it's getting better and better and better. And a few weeks later, I was at a game at West Ham and a voice came up over my right shoulder as I was walking back to my seat and it said, it's getting better and better and better. <laughs> and it was Sven Joran Eriksson and he'd just seen the video. Uh. I don't know whether he was talking about the football or whether, what he was talking about. Anyway, he, that's what he said and that's what I said. And we were really thrilled. And the following morning... At the airport, there was a, a funny incident because Greg Dyke was the director general of the BBC then. And he was absolutely thrilled with the fact we'd had this live and the audience was going through the sky. And he said to me, oh, 23 million, John, can you believe that? And I said, well, I can, Greg. I said, but don't forget, there were 22 million who haven't watched it. I said, what about a repeat, a game like that, England winning 5-1? He said, what do you mean, tonight? And I said, well, can we? And Mark Thompson, who was the head of television, was putting his yeah. bags on the carousel. And Greg Dyke shouted out across the departure lounge, Mark, how do we get rid of Panorama? <laughs> and they did. They took Panorama off the air and replayed the game. Nerville to Janka! It's a goal for Germany! And it's Karsten Janka! Campbell getting in first. Now it's come all the way back to Neville. Now, are they offside? No, they're not. There's a chance of an equaliser here. And they've done it! 
Michael Owen yet again for England. Beckham takes, not one of his better ones, but it's a second chance for him to get the ball in. Gerard. Oh, it's it again, yes! Gerard's shot was deflected, but it's 2-1 England. Beckham. Now, can he finish? Heskey. Oh, heads it down, Owen again! And England have gone into a 3-1 lead here in Munich. Michael Owen gets his second of the match. Oh, Owen's through again for England. What a chance for the hat-trick here. Owen! is getting better and better and better. One, two, three for Michael Owen. Rio Ferdinand to Scholes. Beckham, Scholes again. Now Heskey's to his left unmarked. Emil Heskey, could it be five? Yes, it is! So England swaggered in Munich and they were full of the joys of late summer. Then going forward, England still had a job to do and they hadn't done that. So well, they ended up with a no. situation with Greece where they needed... I can remember sitting in the commentary position at Old Trafford on that afternoon. Trevor Brooking was with me and I can remember thinking, I don't believe this because England played really poorly. And only one man saved us that day and it wasn't just his free kick. David Beckham played Greece on his own. Their two midfield players were out playing us. Sheringham came on as a sub. We got to 2-1. Beckham had taken three free kicks already and hadn't managed to either hit the target or beat the goalkeeper and then we were I think we were in the 92nd minute and the Germans were still playing it was a complicated end of qualifying process but we needed a draw at least and then they got the free kick again and I remember saying well David Beckham it's an injury time is this and then he plonked it in the corner of the net and for the first time I think I remember I rather lost my professional call and certainly Trevor Brooking did because we knocked everything sideways on the on the commentary position and I don't know what happened to half the spare mics and stuff and we we almost ran down the gantry with excitement because England had just got away from that precipice and of course it had to be Beckham and it had to be Old Trafford and it was a wonderful it was a lovely night it was just Again, a bit like the one in Munich, I just felt proud that England had done something. And then, of course, the, res- the result came through from Germany and they had to go into a playoff and we were automatically there in Japan. And Sven went on from there. Beckham to take. The 93rd minute at Old Trafford. We have so far discussed some of the best moments at World Cups and Mm. some international football. We haven't really discussed any moments of English clubs competing in Europe. One of the games that stands out for you is the 1981 UEFA Cup final where Ipswich Town lofted the trophy after an amazing aggregate victory over AZ Alkmaar. Well, of course, I had big connections with Ipswich, which I was very proud of and very sorry to see them go down this season. Um... I went to school in Bury St Edmunds, Suffolk. It's a boarding school there. And when my father was allowed to come and take me out on a Saturday, we used to go to Portman Road. This was the 50s. And a certain secretary manager, as he was described then, Alf Ramsey, was slowly taking it. Well, not so slowly, actually. But he took Ipswich from the third division south into the second division, into the first division. And lo and behold, in 1962, won the championship. And it was a fairy tale. You know, Ted Phillips and Ray Crawford up front. And I always believe Alf's success with England 
had something to do with what he'd learned at Ipswich because he played with a kind of deep-lying outside left, Jimmy Ledbetter, so he didn't have a real winger. And anyway, Alf Ramsey went on to win the World Cup, as we all know. Ipswich Town then prospered under Bobby Robson. And, you know, Bobby got them into Europe nine years out of ten. That is dreamland now when you look where Ipswich are. And they were in the competitions year after year. Real Madrid, all sorts of great teams came to Portman Road. And this particular year was the UEFA Cup of 1981. Now, what happened there was Ipswich had a good run, but in the semi-finals they had to play Cologne, which in those days was a tough one. I think Tony Woodcock was actually playing for Cologne. But I remember doing the game over there, and Terry Butcher scored with a header in the second half to make the aggregate score 2-0, which put Ipswich into the final. And the final, believe it or not, was going to be in the Olympic Stadium in Amsterdam. But the opposition happened to be Dutch, AZ Alkmaar. And in the first leg of the final, Ipswich, at Portman Road this was, scored three goals. John Walk, who was on the point of a record for goals scored in a European campaign, he took a penalty. Franz Tyson, who, with Arnold Muren, when Bobby Robson brought them over from Holland, really changed the way Ipswich played. And, and, and it was a, a bit of a culture shock to see how they did alter their style of football. But anyway, Paul Mariner also scored. They won 3-0 at Portman Road. The second leg, 20th of May 1981, and everybody thought, well, if AZ have got any chance at all, it's turning it over in Amsterdam. But in four minutes, Tyson had scored. And then, oh well, AZ came back into it. I think it was 2-1. And then John Walk, which is why this was a significant game, 14th goal of the UEFA Cup campaign that season, equaling a long-standing record in European competitions set in the European Cup itself by Jose Altafini of AC Milan in 63. Uh, actually, the record was beaten by Jurgen Klinsmann later on for Bayern Munich. But... Bobby Robson's team had won a European trophy and I remember running around the, the stadium trying to find him, find the interview room to talk to him. It was 5-4 on aggregate in the end for Ipswich. And there was all sorts of talk about Bobby going to other clubs. He was always apparently being linked with Everton and who, who knows what. And I managed to pin him down eventually that night and he was saying, no, I'm going to stay at Ipswich, which he did, of course, until he took the England job. But it wasn't a Manchester United or a Liverpool, it was Ipswich Town. And to be there the night they won a European trophy was absolutely fantastic. Away by Arndt. Tyson! Oh, what a start for Ipswich! Number five, Hovenkamp. Plays it in for Johnny Metzhardt. A great run by the sweeper. Cooper made him delay. He turned it back. And there's a goal! Belts were pulling right this time. Finding Petters. Johnny Metzhardt! 2-1 on the night to AZ. Mariners putting it on. Johnny Walk's in there. Johnny Walk. John Walk equals Alcafini's record of 14 goals in Europe. Forward for Johnny Metthot again. Yonker is in there. Toll. Here Toll for AZ. 3-2 on the night. That's Yonker with the shot. What a terrific drive. The flag is up for offside against Brazil and Ipswich win the UEFA Cup on an aggregate of five goals to four. Bobby Robson, of course, was also the manager of uh, Barcelona when Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, made his mark on European football. 
what happened in the 1998 World Cup final when Brazil took on France? And, and as a commentator, I know that getting the team news sorted oh, yes. Yes. at the right time is always helpful for you. Well, but the first team sheet, if I remember rightly, came through and he wasn't on it. And then we got a second one. Yes, that's exactly what happened. When the first team sheet came round and Ronaldo was missing, the whole, and you know what it's like overseas at World Cups, the press gallery is packed. I mean, there were journalists and broadcasters from all over the world. And when they saw this sheet, almost as one, they stood up and started shouting, what on earth's happened to Ronaldo? Has anybody got any information? Is he injured? Nobody knew. And Ray Stubbs was working with me then, and he ran down the steps to the Brazilian commentary position, Globo, and he spoke to Pele, said, what has happened? And Pele just shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know. So nobody had a clue. We didn't know then that he'd gone to hospital, that he'd had a, allegedly had a bit of a turn. And we all kind of alerted our studios to come live. And here's a story. And Des Lynham handed to me. And Trevor Brooking was next to me. And we explained we got this team sheet. And he wasn't on it, Ronaldo. And Edmundo was going to play. And then all of a sudden, as if by magic, another team sheet appeared. And he was back in. And... Again, nobody had, a, nobody had an explanation until, obviously, it's been analysed many, many times later down the years, but nobody knew. And all I can remember about it was thinking something odd must have happened because that was the only time when I was doing a match of that importance that one of the teams never came out the tunnel to warm up and the Brazilian team never came out that night. So something had obviously gone on in the dressing room. And when they did come out, and, of course, France were the hosts... And it was a wonderful World Cup. I mean, the French staged it so well. And goodness me, it, it, you know, it was going to be their night, really. I think that was pretty obvious in, 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 the, in the final. But Ronaldo, well, he was on the pitch, but he never performed the way that one would have expected him to. Um, Zinedine Zidane made his name the night Ronaldo was somehow lost in a fog of intrigue and mystery. And France won the World Cup. And talking of France, we've sort of come full circle, really, yeah. because for our final game in the programme, let's go back to Euro 84 and the uh, European Championships there. And one of the greatest matches in the history of that competition and also one of your most iconic pieces of commentary. France versus Portugal, semi-final in Marseille in that wonderful cauldron of a city. <laughs> it's 2-2 into the final minute of extra time and Jean Tigonard is leading the charge. Yeah. The French muster one more attack in a bid to well, avoid a penalty shootout. Absolutely. And, and, and the game had fluctuated. I mean, France had taken the lead in the first half. Demergue, the left back, became the hero in a way that night next to Platini. And then Portugal who at that time had got some good players but were slightly underrated. They came flying back at France and Jordao equalised 15 minutes from the end. So it went to extra time. And in extra time, Jordao, with a shot that he hit into the ground and it flew up into the French net, he put them 2-1 up and everybody went, oh, the French are going to blow it again because, of course, they hadn't had a good record in international football prior to 84. And then Demergue's second goal made it 2-2. But the scene was set then for Platini to be the hero of that tournament, which he was. He'd already scored in every game. And as you said, Tigana I got the ball, uh, Jean Tigana, and, and I tried to kind of build up the atmosphere as he carried it down the pitch into the Portuguese half, Tigana, Tigana. And I saw Platini go into the penalty area. And of course, right at the last minute, Tigana squared it and Platini stuck it in. And when drama, you couldn't, you couldn't have written it. 
and it was the 119th minute. Tigana, two to his right, and Platini through the middle. Tigana again. Tigana! Tigana! Platini! Goal! Platini for France with a minute to go. It's 3-2. I've not seen a match like this in years. Platini, who had been the hero all the way through the tournament and would go on to, to uh, win it in the, in the final against Spain. Well, the final whistle went and he was chaired off and the French supporters suddenly saw a little bit of success come their way. That was one of the most memorable winning goals. Therefore, one of the matches, European matches, that are in my fondest memories. The final thing we're going to discuss on the show is... I imagine something very difficult for you to, to, to sort of list for us. But if we were to ask you what your top three commentary games were, could you just rattle that off? Because I imagine someone asks you in the pub every, every lunchtime. Well, people, or, yeah, people you know, always when you, say... When you go to an event, they say, Motti, tell me your favourite game. Obviously, the Germany 1-England 5 will stand out because of the situation England were in at that time and the fact the nation needed lifting football-wise. That will always be one of them. Uh, I think the... Brazil-Italy game in 82, the Paolo Rossi hat-trick and the way the Brazilians were knocked out of the World Cup, that will always live with me because the emotion of that day and the way that uh, I said, I think, to you earlier, Bobby Charlton was in tears at the end. He was my co-commentator. I think the memory of that one stands pretty high as well. And then the third one, well, it could be France-Portugal in 84. It could be the Wimbledon Cup final because I've got such sort of striking memories of, of the background to that and, and the goal and the penalty save, it probably would come up there somewhere. And I think probably if I had four, I think the Ricky Villa Cup final in 81 because it was the first replay at Wembley, the 100th year of the FA Cup, and a goal that, you know, has gone down in folklore. So, And I haven't even mentioned Ronnie Radford and Hereford, probably the first time I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you very much. If I'd been told as a 12-year-old Sam Matterface that I was going to get invited round to John Motson's house to discuss his commentary career, I'd have been in well, complete disarray. So, listen, it's listen been thank you very much for great, having us. Great pleasure, Sam, as well, that you're carrying the commentary creed, if I can call it that, into the next generation, because you're, you're, you're doing it so well, and you know, you've led the charge, really, to make commentary better and to match the changing face of football. So it's been a pleasure doing it with you. You're very kind. Thank you very much. Words of wisdom from the football commentator that all other football commentators want to be. This is Motty Meat on Talk Sport.